Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Is a passage from the 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt's Citizenship in a Republic Speech in 1910. I thought this was an apt quote for our discussion today, as our guest is someone who has had a fascination with technology, so much so that he built and sold a business whilst at university, then packed his bags with the vision and courage to compete in the biggest arena, Silicon Valley. He differs from most. Whilst a technologist at heart, he has acute business instincts. He's a system thinker who sees patterns in things and acts on them. Our guest is Adrian Turner, who is currently working with Andrew Forrest and the Mindaroo team leading the Wildfire and Disaster Resilience Program. He is also the co-chair of Australian Cybersecurity Growth Centre and a member of the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Digital Economy. Most recently, Adrian was the founding CEO of CSIRO's Data61, Australia's largest data innovation network, and prior to this, was the co-founder and CEO of smartphone and Internet of Things security company, Vacona Corporation, based in the Valley. Always wanting to give back and proud of his heritage, he became chairman of the board for Australia's expat network, Advance, growing it from 1,500 Australians in New York to 24,000 Australians across 83 countries. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner with Blender Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Adrian shares with us his incredible journey from Sydney to Silicon Valley and back again with glimpses into the world of the tech giants, the way their leaders think, the incredible spirit of entrepreneurism and how a crisis means opportunity. Finally, we ask Adrian what's in store for all of us. What does the future hold? And are told we are now moving from programming computers to programming life. So sit back and enjoy this highly engaging discussion onwards and upwards. Adrian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Second time lucky. What was the excuse last time? Well, around about that time, we got stuck in fires, actually. Um, I'm two brothers, myself, three other guys, got caught defending a property down in Kangaroo Valley for about six hours with neighbours inside and thankfully it worked out and thrilled to be here. And you were fighting them yourselves, your bare hands? Bare hands, we had equipment and I'll tell you, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It went from light of day to, could have been midnight, 
two fire fronts came together as the southerly kicked up on that bad Sunday. Yep. We had pyrocumulus cloud above us that collapsed on the property and a fire front that burned on itself for about 40 minutes. Right. And the winds were up over 100 k's, just snapped trees. It was extraordinary. Now, but you're a man who's known for being, a, I guess, an innovator, an entrepreneur and taking risks. How scary was it and what did you learn from this experience? Yeah, look, it was. So the first part, you, you have this mental image of what are we going to be up against? What's yep. the fight that's in front of us? Yep. And we actually sat down afterwards, the six of us, and said, well, how did that rate compared to what you thought would happen? And we all thought it'd be scrub fires with some fire climbing the trees, but it was it was a 100-foot wall of fire and 250 metres away, you couldn't be in front of it because of the radiant heat. So... You know, thankfully, the five other guys, everybody clicked into a mode of just get it done. We were lucky. There were three times when things went our way where they could have gone a different way. Mm-hmm. We all supported each other. We paired up at key times to look out for each other and made it through. And how does that roll into your help or your work with uh, Andrew Forrest? So about three days after that, I got a call from Andrew and he said, look, Adrian, Nicola and myself are making a pledge of $70 million to uh, fires and three parts to it. One is recovery, the second is response, and the third is resilience. So recovery response is about what can we get in and do immediately to help highly affected communities. So an example there is we've mobilized north of 800 volunteers through Team Rubicon and sent them in to work side by side with tradies to rebuild. Yeah. But the bit I'm focused on is resilience, which is what systemic changes can we make to increase our levels of resilience against fire and floods? And uh, it was very hard to say no. But I'm still struggling. Why did Andrew call you? So uh, I'd gotten to know Andrew over the months prior, and uh, I have a lot of respect for Andrew. Mm -hmm. I think in this country, he's a a calculated risk taker, and Mm -hmm. he's done extraordinary things. The business that he's built is phenomenal. He has a has a conscience, his focus around clean energy. But the Mindaroo Foundation is an extraordinary foundation. And Andrew and Nicola have pledged $1.5 billion to that over the last couple of years. And the sort of problems they're tackling are things like modern slavery, to remove modern slavery from the world within a generation, or plastics, and to rid the ocean of plastics. So by 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean by weight than fish. And what the initiative is focused on is changing the economics of plastics so that Single-use plastics are as expensive as or, or costly as recycled plastics so that we have no reason to not move to recycled plastics. And your focus then is what in that? Because you, you're a systems guy, what are you in that regard? So my background is a lot around applying technology and creating new markets with technology and with a growth mindset finding product market fit or solution market fit okay. and, and and that's where I spent a lot of my career. Okay, so look, when I started out reading a bit about yourself, I found out many years ago you were down in front of Maya singing songs as a young busker. Is that right? Not singing songs, actually uh, <laughs> playing Christmas carols on, oh, really? a, on a violin. <laughs> oh, really? So I'm already talented. Yeah, and uh, it, it actually wasn't that good. And when you, when you realise that you're not as good as you think you are. Yep. It was one of those moments playing the violin where I remember this guy walking up and going, you know, Adrian, how, how long have you been playing for? And I told him and he looked at me and it was just, really? And, and uh, I thought, wow, 
you know, maybe maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Fair enough. <laughs> Now you you start off in a career. I think you backed yourself as a fairly young young bloke. Yeah, packed your bags and went across the west coast USA. What's the story behind that? Yeah, I did. Look, I've I've had a fascination with that place from a young age. Through uni, had built a business and done reasonably well with that. Well enough okay. to put a pack on my back and okay. go travelling. On that trip, I actually met my wife backpacking. Wow. She's American, yeah. and she was the initial reason that. I ended up back in America, but we very quickly ended up on the West Coast and it was an amazing time to be there. It was 1997 we got there. Mm -hmm. It was just as Netscape was starting to take hold and this thing called the web was starting to take hold. So I I lived through that whole first cycle, Mm -hmm. uh, the dot-com boom and bust, and, and then the second cycle as well where we saw the emergence of you know, Facebook and Amazon and companies like that. I'm, I'm so, feel so privileged to have had that, that experience over 18 years. But, over you, there. but you were a founder or co-founder of an organization, weren't you? Yeah. So we, so when I landed, I joined a company called Philips Electronics and about nine months in had seen a trend that I thought would take hold, which was equipment would connect to the internet. And at the time, if you remember, it was only email. So that was a pretty controversial thing, especially inside a company like Philips that had invested hundreds of millions of dollars on proprietary protocols. So I built the business case, had a good leader that believed in me, and I found my way presenting to the chairman of the board and some of the board of Philips. And I said, look, if I'm right, this is going to change consumer electronics and business electronics. And if I'm wrong, it's only going to cost you X millions of dollars. And they said, we'll fund you, but if, if it's that important, then all of our businesses with P&L responsibility will buy into that as well. So we'll give you a dollar and you need to go get a dollar from them. And I didn't know what I was up against. I said yes and traveled around the world and made it happen. We ended up building the IP infrastructure for their connected equipment, uh, all of their connected equipment. Great team at the time. So some of that team, Tony Fidel went on to create the iPhone. So he sold the intellectual property for the iPod to Steve Jobs and Apple. And then he led the development of the iPhone and then went on to create Nest that Google bought for two or $3 billion. So it, it was before Apple, Philips was Apple, great industrial design, really forward looking, trying to figure out how to combine software services and hardware. So what are you, an engineer by background or a techie? Um, so I, I consider myself a technologist, um, but I also have strong business instincts and I see patterns in things. So okay. that IoT, there are only a handful of people talking about connected equipment at that time. That was Scott McNeely at Sun, Bill Joy at Sun, and a couple of others. But then, you know, beyond that, I've seen other markets too, including some of the work back in Australia. But you did set up your own business, didn't you? I did. So I started, uh, co-founded a company called Mokana. So on the heels of that Philips experience, it became clear if you're going to connect equipment to the network, you've got to deal with cybersecurity. It poses a cybersecurity risk. Well, the way back then you're thinking yeah, that. Yeah. So we got we got into that in the early, early to mid-2000s, bootstrapped the business just as the US decided to get serious about cybersecurity. And so we were there early and we and were- who's, who's we? A guy called James Blysdell co-founded that business with me, mm-hmm. and we grew it to be the leader in the world for IoT security. So that software is used in handsets, GM cars, satellites, GE smart grid infrastructure, 
healthcare equipment, military, so used in military equipment. And in fact, because of because it was early in the market and because we had phenomenal technology, we're actually one of the early InQtel portfolio companies. InQtel is the venture arm for CIA, NSA, FBI, and, and others. Yeah. How did you fund it? Uh, so we bootstrapped it. So, uh, what, so, so what does that really mean? What, what, what does that mean? That means that you better figure out how to solve problems that people care about fast. Otherwise, you don't get paid. So we, I remember our very first customer was Nortel Networks, and we framed the $50,000 check that we got for our first sale. Not long after that, we convinced Intel to uh, embed our software in their silicon and we're away from there. And about 150 OEM manufacturers rely on the software today to secure their equipment. Was there many Australians over there? Yeah. So the other thing I did was I, I, so I went to Consul General in San Francisco, who was Peter Lewis at the time. And I said, Peter, I'd like to give back. How do I give back? And he said, well, there's this small group on the East Coast. Um, It was called Young Australian Professionals in America that became advanced, the Global Expat Network. And so I said, look, I'll help you set it up on the West Coast. Then they asked me on the board, and then I chaired the board for five years. And uh, I, I, during that time, during that tenure, we grew it from 1,500 Australians in New York to 24,000 Australians across 83 countries. Every prime minister was the patron to it, and we did a TEDx-style model of events, all volunteer-based, where we did 163 events in the last 12 months around the world. And it was the intent was to give Australians a leg up overseas. So you don't stand still then? No. no actually, it, it, I, I sign off my uh, uh, emails with onwards and upwards, always. So how long did you run your business for? Uh, so I ran that business for 11 years. And how hard is it really at the end of the day? It all sounds like a great story, but how tough was it? It's hard. It's really hard, especially as a first-time CEO which I was for a serious business. So and how, then, old, how old were you? So I was 26, 27 in that Philips experience, building a business inside of Philips. And I was 32 building Makana from scratch. And it's hard because you've got to make it happen, first of all. And then you've got to surround yourself with the right people that complement your own skills. And you're trying to convince people around you, including investors and talented team members, that what what you think is going to come into reality is. They're betting on you. They're betting on the market. They're betting on the vision to to realize all of that and make it real. And so, so that's hard. And then every stage of growth has its own unique challenges. So the kind of zero to five million uh, is harder than five to 50 is, you know, is harder than growth beyond that and the set of challenges are all about you start with an idea you've got to take it to market it's got rough edges you've got to figure out how to turn it into a repeatable business that's not expensive to service and then there's different types of team members that are well suited so some like the early ambiguity and the discovery and the creativity but as you grow and scale particularly globally particularly in a regulated market like cybersecurity, uh, you've you've got to bring in a different skill set that knows how to how to scale. And in your role, are you the front man or are you the visionary sits in the back? How do, how do you play your, your part? So I see patterns in things. So mm-hmm. uh, I see markets and market shifts early and I've done it consistently. I'm acutely aware of my own limitations and have a great network of people that I've built here and overseas that 
I'm constantly testing and bouncing things off of. And these people are creating the future, right? These are the next Mark Zuckerbergs. These are these are very well respected people, but there, there's a sense of uh, kind of curiosity and open mindedness and always always learning. I'm insatiably curious. I'm able to translate deeply technical concepts in business terms to people so they can understand that and have played that role here in Australia over the last three or four years in the role leading Data61. And yeah, I'm also able to mobilize people operationally around large scale outcomes and keep them motivated through it. So the patterns you see, can you sort of give us some examples where you're ahead of the curve? I'll give you one now um, at risk of inspiring competition. So the reason I stepped down from Data61 was I think uh, in the way that we've seen cybersecurity when we started, it wasn't a market at all. Today, it's a $180 billion market, but it wasn't a market back then. And the conversation was, who's going to pay for this? Nobody cares about it. And we proved that people will pay pay for it and other, uh, others prove that as well. Now, we're moving from programming computers to programming life. So the other role that I've played recently was chair of the ICT stream for the $500 million national genomics mission. And that that's a push to use genomics to completely re-engineer our national healthcare system for from crisis interrupt-driven healthcare to management and personalized medicine. Adrian, can I just ask you, what is genomics? So genomics is understanding our genome, so our DNA, yeah, okay. and uh, genomics is looking at the intersect of our genome with what's called phenotypical data, which is our surroundings. So our health record is phenotype data and our DNA is genotype. And the intersection of those two things, so our DNA and genome and uh, and our environment, heavily influence things like disease and health. And so if we can get into understanding that at a personal level, we can start to build personalized medicine, personalized nutrition, uh, and get ahead of illnesses that might express themselves and conditions down the road. So it's a complete reframe of how we think about medicine and healthcare. So I think what's going to happen as we move to programming life is biosecurity is going to be a market in the same way that cybersecurity was when we started programming computer systems, bio threats. And so an example of that would be uh, swine fever, African swine fever with pigs. So this is Ebola for pigs. And there's an outbreak in China. It's ripped through the Indo-Pacific through 12 or 13 countries. If it hits our shores, which it hasn't, thankfully, it's in East Timor right now, that will cause a $2 billion to $15 billion impact on our pork industry. And of course, another one that's top of mind right now is Corona. And you think about coronavirus and the economic implications of bio threats. And that's, that's where I'm focused as a business. So that's a pattern that I saw starting May last year uh, and uh, stepped down from Data61 to, uh, to pursue that. Who are you going to be competing with in this space? Right now, there's not a market, but there will be a market. So there, there are companies that are solving parts of this problem, but not in the way that I'm envisaging it. And we're getting great feedback from the market. And you, you just see the, the reaction of the world to coronavirus. Yes. 
and the implications all the way down through to supply chain dependencies through to you know geopolitics as well and what we're seeing here is something that we're encountering for the first time but it will it, it absolutely will not be the last time because we've got more people movements we've got 600 million people in the indo-pacific moving into the middle class and traveling more right we've got more trade movement 36 percent of gdp is cross-border trade we've got genetic engineering so you you can make biological products and interventions in the lab uh, with with the right certification but with open source software like CRISPR and that's all coming together I think in a way that the threat factors are going to lift off exponentially in the way that they did with cybersecurity. So biosecurity threats like corona what does it actually mean for global business? So I think what we're seeing here is the emergence of a new class of risk and it's systemic risk so it, it cuts across jurisdictions, um, it cuts across organizational boundaries as well. And it's going to differ based on where the companies sit in the value chain. So for some companies, they're going to be directly impacted and affected. For others, it's going to be an external shock that might suppress consumer demand or have a second order consequence for their business. But what, what this speaks to for me is we're moving to a more network society. And we're moving to more interdependent uh, economies, financial systems, and systemic risk is something that enterprises have to get much, uh, much better at dealing with, where you've got incomplete information to make judgments about the risk and the implications. And it's fast moving and the context is, is changing and fast moving. So, you know, I think back to the evolution of cybersecurity where, you know, that that wasn't a board level conversation not that many years ago. That was considered a technical issue, but it's not. It's a business issue. And there was talk in the boardroom around risk and trying to quantify risk. And it was a static assessment. If you go into a boardroom today, those same conversations are dynamic where you've got, you've got a chief information security officer pulling up a dynamic dashboard and saying, these are the nature of the threats right back through to like health and safety, this is how we're dealing with it from a cultural perspective and it's everybody's responsibility. With biothreats, it's going to be the same thing. And same, if we go back to the fires for a moment, that's about natural disasters. Yeah. And in a world where weather is increasingly volatile as a result of climate change, companies are going to have to plan for and be resilient to increased weather volatility, whether you know, fire, flood, cyclones. If you talk with the insurance companies in Australia, particularly off the East Coast, the cyclones are going to get bigger with the warming water. They're going to move slower. They're going to move further inland. That means that Southeast Queensland is going to have to deal with and be resilient to a different type of threat in the future. And based on what you just said then, is the Australian government handling this and actually getting the messaging out accordingly? So I think they are. Look, I've, I've got um, again, I feel privileged coming back into Lead Data 61. I was sitting across government, industry, and academia. And I sat on government boards. I sat on the Prime Minister and Cabinet Data Integration Partnership Board, which is looking at whole of data strategy. Data 61 led the standards advisory work for consumer data rights, which will open up the financial services sector. We right. did a lot of work in cybersecurity across, across industry as well. So 
I've got a greater appreciation of how government works and how decision-making happens. And there's a lot of really well-intended people inside of government wanting to make sure that help gets to the right people. A challenge that we have is that we're federated. We've got feds, we've got state, and we've got local jurisdictions. And in our FIRE program, we've got two streams that I mentioned, recovery and response. So we've got team on the ground in affected communities talking with people. I was on Kangaroo Island the day after the program launched talking with people that had lost their houses and were desperate for, for some help. And an example there is, you know, you've got a cashless card, which is a great initiative, but you've got to get off the island to activate the card. So there's a lot of learning, but we've had a lot of learning too. So I think there've been something like 57 or 59 public inquiries around fires specifically, including four royal commissions around fires. And if you have a look at a lot of those recommendations, there are a lot that have been implemented and there are a lot that haven't. Yep. But if you look at the death rate with these particular fires, they would be a lot higher had we not learnt from those past experiences. So I think there's always more that can be done. I think we're getting a double whammy with the fires and corona over the top. And look, there's two things that we can do in a time like this. We can get paralysed and we can stop. Or we can say there's opportunity in this and have conviction and take you know, a leadership stance and companies in times of pullback, that's where the new companies emerge. In a time of pullback, it's how do you, how do you continue to invest in R&D and innovation and take advantage of the uncertainty with a clarity of where the opportunity is and emerge way stronger. But do we invest enough in R&D in this country? Look, we don't. But one of the, one of the challenges that we have is we tend to associate innovation with R&D. R&D is only one type of innovation. I'd actually, uh, in 2012, put pen to paper in, uh, in a book called Blue Sky Mining. That, I can ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. That, and look, again, being a systems thinker, I wanted to understand how the valley worked. And so I literally, you know, I tracked down the guy that was in the Berkeley lab where when Andy Grove and uh, Noyce had a, had a fight about a cigarette that led to a conversation that led to Intel that led to this guy writing his a check out of his own pocket to fund Intel. The guy's name was Bill Guzzi. So I wanted to deeply understand it. So I sought people, including the, the, the godfathers of venture capital. There's a guy there called Ron Conway. He invested in me and I got to know Ron. So what I did and what I saw was there were 10 underlying systemic things that made the Valley work. So it's the size of Greater Sydney in terms of population is two and a half million people. But the Silicon Valley 150 is bigger in terms of market capitalization than the whole of the ASX, mm. right? And the ability to continually reinvent and create new industry is because of these systemic conditions there that people don't talk about, but they're there. So what and are they? What are those conditions? So look, an example would be creative destruction, right? So we've, what I mean by that is if you look at Twitter, Right. So Twitter started, Jack Dorsey started Twitter as uh, a blog site called Odeo and took external money. And, you know, you, 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 the, the initial instinct would be persevere with it, make it work. But what he did was he went back to his investors and said, look, this can be a decent business, but I've got this idea for this other business. And I think it's a better idea and a bigger idea. 
if you if you back me, invest in this new business and we'll go build it. That became Twitter, right? So yeah, right. that won't happen as much unless the culture really rewards that creative destruction, which the other end of that is fear of failure, yeah. where you where you're so risk averse or you're so focused on the downside. I feel like I see that a lot. We saw that a lot at Data 61. I, I see that a lot here and it surprised me coming back into the country. It's like a lot of playing not to lose versus playing to win. I think that sums up a lot of the mentality out there at the moment. What made you come back? So in that book, so I contrasted with Australia and then made recommendations for closing the gap. And one of them was that there should be a nonpartisan group straddling government and industry that could help affect change from within the system. And when I was approached about Data 61, the, the conversation was, we've got two groups, we're going to merge an organization, each roughly 550 people, total 680 PhDs, and we're going to create a new entity and we want you to lead it. And I looked at it and I said, you know what, if that's done well, that could be that part of the solution. That could be that body that sits in that place. So what happened was, came back, I said I'd do it, convinced the family to come back. And so you walked away from a successful career yep. in the US. Yeah, and it was hard. It was it was hard. I mean, we were we, we had the place pegged out where we were going to go retire and you know, it was but I've always been mission driven and the advance work and going through all of the research to put together blue sky mining. I from the outside looking in, it looked like we weren't making fast enough progress as a country. Yep. And as an Australian, I cared a lot about that enough to come back into the country and be part of the solution. So so that's what we did. And I looked at it and the brief was figure out whether this thing should be part of CSIRO or separate to CSIRO. And I'm not sure if it was ever really a choice, but that's the way it was described. So I pulled over the guy from the US who led big part of the HP compact merger for Carly Fiorina. And I pulled him over for six months and I said, help me get up the streams, the integration streams. I need to get out into the market and understand why this merge is happening. And part of the reason for it was some funding got pulled for half of the organization. Uh, the federal government pulled $42 million of funding, annual funding. So I also turned up to a $56 million annual operating budget hole that we had to had to scramble to address. So what I took to the CSIRO board was we should be part of CSIRO, but if we do this right, we can help accelerate the digital transformation of the country's national science agency, but we need a license to operate differently in 23 areas if we're going to succeed. And the board said yes to 22 of them. Why should you have been part of the CSIRO? So the thinking was where we're headed next is, is the intersect of digital technology with other industries. So if you look at the big online businesses, they're really information centric. So it's messaging communications, it's Facebook, it's, it's, you know, Apple iTunes, music is effectively data and information. Some of the financial services plays like the early e-trade and some of the stock trading platforms. Money is information, PayPal, eBay was all about, you know, it's a fundamentally data information. But the next cycles and the much bigger cycles are digital health, digital agriculture, digital energy, transportation. So it's all of those things. And CSIRO is, is an amazing organization. It's an, it's, a, it's an amazing asset for the country. It has strength in things like agriculture and healthcare and 
biosecurity and and other areas. And so the thinking was if we can get this working really well, we can seed new industry for Australia and help diversify the Australian economy. So what did you achieve? I felt like we achieved a lot. So if I think about and and look, there were some things that worked and well, there were some things that to, did you, didn't work. Did you tick off what you wanted to achieve? Yeah, with one exception. So um, I I was hoping by now that as a country we would have had a national artificial intelligence program, and we got close to it. So we were asked to lead the national AI development of the national AI roadmap and AI ethics framework, which we did and is published. And I'm confident that the country will step up to, in the same way that other countries are, recognize that AI will fundamentally transform industry in the same way that the internet and the web did. And the other achievements? So over the course of three and a half years, we redefined the model for applying R&D and translating that into commercial outcomes. So we redefine the model as a network model. So we had a single collaboration agreement with 32 Australian universities and universities overseas. We had a third of Australia's ICT PhD students under scholarship in the network. We completed 600 projects over three and a half years. We're a trusted advisor to government. We had a portfolio of, I'm going to say, a dozen companies that we own part of as a result of licensing intellectual property. One of the halves of the business spun one out that went public, Ordinate, that traded seven times up its IPO price. We've got another one that I think has potential to be a multi-billion dollar company, which is the ex-Cochlear team that's tackling a new market called neuromodulation, which is if pharmaceuticals is chemistry of the body. This is stimulating nerve pathways, and it's an implantable that goes into the spine and think about noise-canceling headphones. It flatlines pain signals in the spine. And uh, literally, you know, it works. It's coming out of clinical trials and people are getting up and walking that haven't for a long time. So those, those sort of commercial outcomes we, we achieved as well. And you know, there were some things that we set out to do that didn't work. And, and we learned along the way part of the culture we set and the values. We created values very early on for the organization was to really push the envelope and really take calculated risk and when you're doing that you fail a lot on the way to success so not everything worked but the things that did worked well and how long did it take everybody to come up to that sort of level of thinking uh so it it took a good 12 months and was it a shock to you look look it was what i didn't expect was the baseline understanding of not not to technology we have some of the smartest minds in the world if you look at any technology domain, but it's the intersect of technology with business yep. and emerging data economics or platform economics. So if you look at platforms, we've produced some good ones, right? Seek is an example of that. Atlassian is an example of that. So we have produced some good ones, but if you look at incumbent companies, like if I look at the banks, for example, they've been so slow to think in terms of themselves as platforms, think in terms of the assets that they have and the data assets that they have and think in terms of evolving to build an ecosystem of third parties around them that are also adding value. Same thing's going to happen in the ag sector, same thing's going to happen in in the healthcare sector as well. You touched on AI, so there's a lot of scaremongering out there in regards to AI. Can you sort of tell the audience where AI is going to take us? Yeah, so there's two types of AI. There's uh, 
artificial narrow intelligence and artificial generalized intelligence. So generalized intelligence is Terminator. You know, these images of robots walking around <laughs> killing people. Yep. Uh, and that, that, that is people estimate 2060, 2050, 2060, if at all. Long, long way to go, if at all. Okay. But if we think about artificial narrow intelligence, then what's going on here and what's different here is you've got algorithms that are able to infer or make a prediction about something that's going to happen and then monitor and watch the outcome and then adjust, dynamically adjust without any human intervention. So they're learning. So an early application of this is logistics and logistics optimization, route optimization uses machine learning to dynamically optimize uh, routes and learn from that. If you think about in an area of risk, we couldn't defend network systems from cyber threats without machine learning and you know, machine learning techniques. We couldn't do effective credit risk assessments in financial services without machine learning and machine learning-based systems. And then sitting alongside those, you have a thing called computer vision, which is robots and autonomous systems being able to see, but it's also things like satellite imagery and and being able to use satellite imagery for the ag sector and do time-based analysis around how crops are growing and or invasive weeds are kind of invading a territory. And then you've got robotics. And we've got one of the strongest autonomous systems robotics groups in the country, in the world. So... At Data61, there was a group at Pool and Vale. So in the US, there's a group called DARPA, which is the defense agency, and they run challenges or missions. And their challenge or mission was, how do you get a drone to go into a GPS-denied environment, in, into a mine shaft, for example, navigate, self-navigate around obstacles at, at a certain speed threshold, go seven kilometers underground and then come back again. So we were the only international team outside the US that made the cut. Right? And we've just got through two uh, knockout eliminations where people from all over the world are coming with their drones and their, their autonomous systems to compete. There's also the gloom of AI, yep. which is the dislocation of the Australian workforce or the global workforce. Yep. Are governments, from what you're seeing, anywhere near ahead of that discussion? Well, they're going to be playing catch-up, and as a result, a lot of people are going to get hurt in the middle. Yeah, so AI is really a data story because your, your machine learning-based system is only as good as the data that's feeding it. Okay. So what I think we're seeing is a recognition by government of the importance of data and data ownership, and you see that reflected in the Consumer Data Rights Initiative. I think what we're going to see is the emergence of a new model, just Again, coming back to patterns, I think we're going to see the emergence of a category of company called industry utilities. And what they are is, think of them as like data cooperatives for a particular segment. So take the ag sector. So you've got small and mid-sized producers that will never compete with the Monsanto and the data scale advantages that they have, but they can pull certain data assets that are not, not the basis of them competing but it could be around disaster management, right? You could imagine they pull those data assets and then benefit from the collective intelligence of that data sharing. And uh, I think what we're going to see in government is Deb Anton, who's the data commissioner in the country, is very focused on this. 
certification and assurance regimes to be able to access shared data. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of talk about open data, government making data sets open. We created what's called National Map, which has become the de facto standard for spatial data with 15,000 data overlays on a map of Australia that you can drill into if you go to nationalmap.gov.au. So that's open data. But shared data is where you want to access certain data for certain decision support or to get certain insights, and you need to link data from different places in government. Right, okay. So the first instance, that'll be for government agencies that want to reach across into another part of government. But the real compelling piece, I think, is if you could create the mechanism for industry to link with certain government data sets, protecting privacy, anonymized data that could unlock a whole lot of value, particularly for Australia, where 98, 99% of our economy is small business. Speaking of small business, and I'll just say I was an entrepreneur in technology and I came to see you. Yep. And I asked for some advice. And I wanted to know, shall I stay in Australia or shall I pack my bags and go offshore? What, what advice would you actually give? So I've made a decision to stay in Australia. Mm-hmm. I'm optimistic about uh, the country and... It comes back to that talent base that I talked about before. Yeah. The talent is extraordinary. And particularly the next generation of talent coming through, they're fearless. So they don't have the same fear of failure, focus on risk. They've grown up with a different mindset and, okay. and probably more of a global mindset in the, in the presence of the network and being able to kind of access information globally. So... If you think about where we're situated relative to the Indo-Pacific, although there's cultural challenges, uh, I think if we have an opportunity to not just be a bit player in the region, but to actually exert you know, leadership with others in the region, and I think that's incredibly exciting as, as, uh, as entrepreneurs to be able to do that. And then the US, our systems are different, but the same. It, it's actually... When I landed there, people would say, well, how is the US the same or different? And I'd say it's deceptively similar, right? Because you've got the same stores, you've got the same TV shows, people speak English, but it's different. But it's close enough that, uh, you know, you can scale up from here as well overseas. And depending on the nature of the business... You can house in Australia and build a sales and marketing front end anywhere in the world. So you think there's enough capital here? Well, it depends on the class of capital, right? So the venture market over the last five years, there's been a lot of capital go into that, close to a billion or more go into the venture capital market. That wasn't the case. We've also got good people leading those. So if I think about you know a Blackbird Ventures, for example, Nikki and the team have done a great job there and they've, they've had great returns. Still, there's a level of risk aversion. So if you think about Atlassian, it was Joe Schoendorf from Excel, which is a Silicon Valley-based VC, who came down and found uh, Atlassian. You know, Joe, Joe's actually in country a lot with team. And Australian entrepreneurs have a great reputation for delivering. Akin, actually, to the Israelis have the same sort of, we've got a lot of fight in us. When we believe in something, we'll fight for it. Um, against and will knock down obstacles and execute. So uh, no, I'm I'm optimistic about the country, and I think as we move to the intersect of biological systems, as we move to instrumentation of physical environments, as we move to these data utilities, 
our, our geography is actually an advantage to us. What about listed organisations? Have you had much exposure to them and the way that they think at the exec level and the board level? So I have. So at Data61, we developed the AICD curriculum with AICD for cybersecurity for directors. And that led into a lot of discussion around risk and how to deal with risk. I do get asked to speak to groups of directors on a fairly regular basis, just in terms of what's coming next and how do we think about digital and digital transformation. I've lived through two digital transformation initiatives, one at Philips. Um, I didn't mention I was on the global six-person e-commerce transformation board when e-commerce hit for Philips. They were 240,000-person company at the time, so that was that was a big shift. And then uh, CSIRO, so I championed for a digital transformation program inside of CSIRO and led the first leg of that. So they're the sort of things that we talk about. What's impactful leadership to you? I think it, it was interesting. I was with a guy yesterday, actually, in Australia, who's done a lot of work with boards. Okay. He's developed with some others a model that calls out a set of traits in leaders and boards that drives above market returns. And they're not the things that the market measures today. And so he's built a system that measures those things. And just to give you an example, purpose, right? Purpose. So if you talk with the CEO at Cochlear, their purpose is bigger than any one individual and it's aspirational and it's something that you can get fired up about and be a part of. And the only way you get there is by working as a collective and working as a team. The culture in the organization around taking calculated risks because the half-life of a market and the market shifts or the half-life of a technology I think is shortening and you need to be investing in what's coming next in adjacent opportunities. And so the companies that are creating the space to invest, and it doesn't have to be R&D, it can be other types of innovation. It can be business process, it can be business model innovation. They're, they're the ones that are succeeding. And when you meet those teams, you can spot them a mile away. It's just different. There's a different feel to those conversations. There's a different emphasis on not just risk and compliance, but growth and growth mindset. There's more global context as well in the conversation. So should we put you on boards? Look, I uh, I have been on boards here. Mm-hmm. I was on the Australian eHealth Research Centre board as well, currently co-chairing OSCyber, which is a federal government initiative to create a cybersecurity industry here. Okay. And we've gone from identifying 35 cyber companies when we started three, three and a half years ago to now over 300. And we've been, not, it's not just us, but we've been supporting them and helping them scale and grow and introducing them to capital and whatnot. But I, I would like to join the right board yeah. and a board where I think I can add value. I'm not interested in joining a board that hasn't really come to terms with or internalized just how much the world is changing around us right now, but a board who has with a growth mindset that really wants to go and capitalize on that because I think there's so much opportunity right now and with a clarity of where these trends are leading us, potential to create global franchises out of Australia for sure uh, as well as regional franchises. So I'd be excited to be a part of that sort of team. But do you hear people speak like that, Adrian? I do hear some, yeah. Not many. No, but uh, more. And I think 
I think back to this corona shock, I think it's going to separate a lot of companies. When well, the economy find a, find is, a few leaders, that's for sure. Yeah, as the economy pulls back, tough decisions are going to have to be made. Do you, you know, do you shrink a business and shrink the cost base and focus on earnings per share? Do you take a longer term view? That's the other thing as well. So full circle back to Silicon Valley and yep. uh, entrepreneurs. Yep. So you're so, not listed, you're not doing your quarterly or half yearly reporting in those days? Correct. Or if you look at the companies that have got really big, and and so I, Joe Schoendorf, who invested in Excel, yep. um, when he was down, I reached out to him and said, you know, can we go have a drink? And I just wanted to kind of learn. And I said, so, you know, Joe, in terms of IRR, internal rate of return, Excel's the best in the valley, right? They're number one over over decades. And it's like, Joe, what is it? What's the common denominator in these companies? And he said, you know what it is? We looked through all of our deals over all of this time and the founding CEO is there to ring the bell at the IPO. Now, what do I mean by that? What mm. I mean by that is a CEO has got so much conviction about the problem that they're going to solve that they're a founding CEO, an entrepreneurial CEO, that they're going to mortgage the house, put everything on the line to go chase that and make it real, right? You know, the fable of the, um, the chicken, chicken and the pig, right? And how much more committed the pig is to uh, eggs and bacon than, uh, than the chicken, right? So it's like you've got to be all in. You've got to, you've got to be committed, absolutely committed. The other thing is they have a longer-term view. So typically an entrepreneur will see something that's over the horizon or you know, they've got a longer-term view. So those founding CEOs that stay with the company with those attributes over time, think about it, right? It's mm. Bill Gates. It's Steve Jobs yep. twice. It's Mark Zuckerberg. It's uh, the Atlassian guys. Uh, and, you, and you can go on and on. It's uh, Larry Ellison uh, Larry Ellison at uh, Oracle, um, you know, at the Walmart guys, um, Sam, Sam Walton and the Walton family. So it's like- So tenure. Yeah, it's, it's tenure, but it's the freedom to take longer-term decisions and invest for longer-term position. Look at Bezos, right? Bezos is another example with Amazon, right? Every, the rest of the world is playing checkers and he's playing chess, looking long-term and making strategic decisions. And- oftentimes won't bring together the elements until you know he'll, he'll solve a problem in parts and not disclose the strategy and then bring them together and it's game over you know he win, he fights the fight before anyone else realizes there's a fight to fight and so you see that in strong leaders and i think this period now as we hit some headwinds is is going to put a focus on that do you focus on the short term or do you say you know what this is an opportunity to actually invest to reframe and to come out of the volatility even stronger. You're really questioning a lot of today's thinking, aren't you? I am. Look, I'm, I'm a contrarian thinker, but again, it comes back to seeing patterns and seeing over the horizon a little bit. And I, I don't at all think that I've got, you know, I know it, I don't, right? It's an insatiable appetite to go and learn and to get ground truth data, to go and, I mean, if I bring it back to the bushfires, yep. minute, there's okay. a lot of discussions going on, a lot of roundtable discussions going on in this country right now about how do we make sure this doesn't happen again. But what you'll see in a lot of these discussions is you won't see people from the front line. You won't see somebody who's lost their house, who's living the experience 
in the room as part of the discussion, right? Yeah. So that's the other thing that really good leaders will do is to get the ground truth data and then course correct based on the ground truth data. You reckon we're not asking enough questions? Or, you know, it's hard to make general. That's a big question and it's a generalization, right? Yeah, sure My answer is. is a generalization. Yeah, but look, we've had four, we had a number of royal commissions beforehand, as you, as you rightly said, and we got it wrong. And there's some big lessons to come out of this. Yep. But for example, telcos went down. Yep. Basic stuff went down in this country. How did that happen? The real answer would be to put, put utilities underground, right, where we can. But the question is who pays for that? Yeah, and right. it becomes an economic thing. So if part of a telco network were to get knocked out, it's a, you know, a cost-benefit analysis. And I do think there's some interesting technology emerging. So if we think about what SpaceX is doing with Starlink, um, low orbit satellites is going to create, they're going to create new kinds of communication mesh networks that uh, satellite communications that are going to be affordable and are going to provide resilience and redundancy in, in times of disaster. Can I ask you, just going back all those years when you were at Silicon Valley, you talked about a lot of people during your discussions earlier. Did you make the effort to go and meet them all? And, I did. And did you find them all very happy to see an Aussie turn up and knock on their door? Absolutely, right? So you, you would sit and they'd give back. It's, it's, it's a pay it forward culture. So it's a function of a couple of things. One is I think people there have generated wealth so quickly. There's almost a, an embarrassment about the amount of wealth with some of these people. And so they want to give back. They absolutely want to give back and give time. And I didn't find anyone that I couldn't get to. Usually it's one degree of freedom or two degrees of freedom. I remember meeting with a recruiter to try and get a lay of the land when I first landed there. And he said to me, he pulled me aside and he goes, and he was a well-known recruiter and re recruited people that you would know into, into companies you would know. And he said, Adrian, you know, you've found the rainforest. You're here. He's like, Good recruiter speak. Yeah. Don't pee in the rainforest because everyone has to drink the water. So that's literally, and I'm like, right. And what he was saying was, this is an ecosystem and we support each other and we help each other and we lift each other and we're all part of it. And so there's a mindset of help, pay it forward, help. And so where I lived, I go down for, for a coffee in the morning yeah. and I'd see Zuckerberg, right, when there were 25 people and he'd be interviewing people from six, six in the morning, right? But next to Zuckerberg and a few tab tables over, it wouldn't be a surprise to see like a Reed Hastings that founded uh, Netflix. And Reed would be there in shorts and sandals and he'd be meeting with the 18-year-old that was asking for advice on business, right? It's like people are very, very approachable and very accessible. Adrian, people say Silicon Valley is a bit of a bubble. Is, is that the case? I remember when we got there, there were still orchards in Sunnyvale. It was, a, it was an agricultural place and an intensity about creating a new future, but it was all about the entrepreneur and the entrepreneurialism. What has happened is I, I do think it's lost its way. And that was also part of the discussion with the family about is now the time to go back to Australia. And the reason I think it's lost its way is there was Sarbanes-Oxley came in that introduced a whole bunch of regulation for companies that wanted to go public. And what that meant was that companies were forced to stay private for longer. And so if you look at Amazon, if you look at Microsoft, they both went out at about a $400 million market cap-ish. If you look at Facebook, it went out at $100 billion. To make that all work, 
you've got to get people with the ability to write bigger checks into a private company. So the whole funding structures changed in the Valley and you had the guys on the East Coast in Wall Street that bought their way in, the PE firms bought their way in. You had offshore money, you know, Saudi Russian money come in as well, capable of writing big checks. And then it became more so about financial engineering in some cases, not all cases, to be able to demonstrate an increase in valuation for those investors on paper. And that, I think, led to perverse decisions in in and around some of these companies. I'm not saying anybody broke the law, but just culturally it was, it, it led to a different type of culture within the Valley. And, you know, I think less about solving real problems and more about financial engineering. Is it on its demise? I think it will always be a hotbed for new industry creation because there's elements of that ecosystem that you need to have firing together. So you need the talent that's got an appetite for risk. You need the strong academic institutions that with porous boundaries so people can move between the university and industry and back to the university again. We don't do that. It's very hard to move into industry and then back into a uni. And then you've got to have sophisticated risk capital at different stages. So you've got to have the early stage guys like a Ron Conway or a, or a Y Combinator right through to the you know the tier one firms. You've got the Greylock, you've got a Benchmark, you've got an Excel, right through to the later stage funds. You know, NEA, for example, has big funds and they are all specialists at different stages of growth. Um, so you've got to have all of that firing together for the whole system. So There are. I mean, other parts of the world are wiring that system together. I think Israel's done a phenomenal job focused on cybersecurity. Initially, we licensed our cybersecurity software into a lot of companies, including Checkpoint was that, you know, their big cybersecurity was a licensee, as well as other equipment manufacturers. And what they did was they sold components into global companies. They figured out how do you build a big global cybersecurity company or or technology company, the next generation of company went all the way. They didn't license the component. They built the company uh, and built the bigger companies. And now what's interesting, if you look at cyber, they've actually gone back the other way because there was a window. There was a period of time when Symantec stumbled, McAfee stumbled, and the security platform market was open. And you saw Palo Alto Networks step into it. Um, Great guy who uh, had a lot to do with that, a guy called Bill Landfree, who uh, went in there and you know, his insight was um, who are we serving and what problem are we solving? And the conclusion was we're protecting data in remote sites. And they figured, well, that's banks. And so they actually fired all of their customers that weren't banks and focused down on banks and they were a 4 or $5 billion company you know, not that many years down the road and today they're a $23 billion company or Zscaler, another, you know, north of $10 billion company last time I looked. So th- there'll be other places in the world, but there'll, I think there'll always be something special about the Valley. So Data61, were you building that rainforest in Australia? We set out to do that. In fact, we, we said we'd like to create an environment here where the best and brightest can do the best work of their career and draw them out to be a part of it. And We did do that. The team there is amazing. I would walk on glass for people inside that organization that every day are getting up and changing the world uh, in their own way. And 
we did. We created something very special, and uh, I'm proud of it. And it was sad to step out of it. It was the right thing to do. It's also at times an organization moves into a different phase, and I think it was the right thing for the organization too. You know, and I hope the organization gets somebody stronger and better and can take it to a new level. Right? That that's what you hope for when you when you're building something. Yeah, people, everyone who's been in and around that has a sense that there was something special going on over the last three or four years there. And do we have that same sort of community that you sort of mentioned? Um, We have elements of it. I think one of the the things that I don't think we do well enough is wrap support around the entrepreneur. So if what I said is true, that you want to back the entrepreneur through the full arc of a company, so they're there, they may not be leading the company, but they're there ringing the bell at the IPO, then you need to wrap support around them. And uh, I remember I got introduced to this woman, BJ, and she had been an executive coach for a bunch of people like Ross Perot, Mark Templeton at Citrix, um, and, and a whole bunch of others, and small companies as well. And I pursued her and said come and work with me and come and work with my team and make us better and she did and it was it was extraordinary right and it was so humbling and it was um yeah it was a pretty confronting experience to work with someone like that and and they hold a mirror up to you and you're kind of learning as you're going but it's tough right it's like when you're an athlete, right, someone holds up a mirror and says, you know, you, you're not getting it done. So what do you do? Do you quit or do you double down and work harder and figure out how to get it done? And so Silicon Valley wraps that support infrastructure around leaders in a way that a lot of others don't. The other thing over there is you've got more operators on boards. So the com- here I get the sense that there's a career progression where you're an operator and then in the second part of your career you migrate to be a board member yeah that doesn't happen and and it really can't happen because the context is changing so quickly these you know the digital trends are hitting so hard that to have the experience of dealing with that in the trenches like if i'm building a company the people i want on my board are a combination of those people who are in the second part of their career but I want the operator who's up in the front line in an adjacent business who's understanding not in the abstract what's going on or not focusing on risk and governance, but is focused on, well, how are you dealing operationally? How's the team doing? What's the, what's the culture like? You know, what, are, what are customers saying? And not, not through you know, an MPS score, but like you know, what, what's really going on here and then supporting the CEO and making sure that the team is being supported. Now, at the end of the day, it's about performance. And if a CEO is not performing or a team's not performing, you've got you to gotta deal with it. But I think we can take that away from the US and the way that US boards work. International content, you mentioned a lot there. Do you stay in touch with the Americans or the Europeans on a very regular basis? I do. I have a really uh, strong network of people that I stay connected to. Yeah. They're people that are like-minded in the sense that you know, they're people that are focused on the substance. They're people that are focused on longer-term change and growth. And they're people that are involved in building really big businesses as a result of that. But yeah, I do a lot. And in fact, we did, a, we did, we did an external review at Data61 of our work. And you know, I said to the team, I said, 
we, we can go about this one of two ways, right? We can go about it as a check the box and stack the group that looks at, at the work, or we can get better through this process and pull the best around the world. So yeah, an example is I was able to get down Mark Bregman, who was CTO of Symantec, Veritas, Newstar, um, you know, on national cybersecurity boards. And, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's those sort of networks that uh, make, make the US work. And I learned that actually because I had to because I didn't know anybody. I had to get really good. And I'm, I'm a natural introvert. Um, and, and I had to get out and get good at networking, but also good at public speaking, good at media. You have to do that when you're creating a new market. You have to convince people to pay attention and maintain those, those relationships and will. What's the next venture? So I think uh, what I'm focused on, and I gave an example around biosecurity, there's, there's a bigger play where biosecurity is one dimension of it. You never know when you head into it, but I'm going to give it my best to go build a global franchise from Australia. That's what I'm setting out to do. All um, right. So what's, what, you're going to be a new leader. You've been leader yep. a couple of times over. Any difference in style this time around? Huge difference. So what I've learned over my career is to shift the style of leadership to coach and really create the environment and help others kind of express all of their potential and creativity and set them up for success and, and a focus on culture. Uh, so the values of the organization, the purpose of the organization, and then I'd make decisions faster. So I think that's the shift. Early in your career, you kind of have a sense, you kind of feel it in your gut that something's not right or that person's not going to work out. And I think if I look back, there are several times where I just took too long. I was like, well, I can turn it around. I can work with a person. Now I wouldn't. I'd be very clear in setting expectations around it's two-way street. We'll invest in you 100%. You invest in us 100%. We'll do great things together. Support them but be data-driven, evidence-based in the decision, but move faster in, uh, in key decisions. And what type of person are you going to be recruiting? I'm going to be recruiting. My goal is to build the best data science team in the country that's globally respected. And I think it is about team, but it's also about the environment. So create that culture where people can do the best work of their careers and play to win, right? It's play not you know, we're not in this to not lose. We're in it to win and be mission-driven in what we do as well. So it's not, it's not about the money. It's never been about the money. The money comes as a result of doing great work and solving problems that people care about, that people will pay money for. So it's also being principled and values-based as an organization. And that culture will attract the best. The best want to work with the best on interesting problems and interesting work. And it's interesting in Australia right now, I've had several incumbent companies come to me and say, Adrian, we're struggling to attract and retain the sort of digital talent yep. that we need. Yeah. And then you go very quickly to, well, what do you stand for? What problems are you solving? Well, we're going to lift customer service and support levels by this. No, no. What are you, what are you really doing? What's the, perp what's success, right? And, um, and, Few few businesses really, really understand, I think, or have articulated that in a way that employees can connect with it and go, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. And, you know, Elon Musk is a pretty controversial character, but talk about someone who's willing to get out there and say, 
you know what, we need to back up the human race and figure out how to colonize Mars or we need to change the economics of putting things into space. And I remember this time I met Elon was there's this small group that was um, run by Strat News and it's called Firestarters. A guy called Mark Anderson, very, very sharp guy. And basically they pick out interesting companies and they're successful people and we go on stage. It's a bit of like we're we're muses, I guess. (laughs) but a healthy conversation and then you define a problem and the people in the room go away for 24 hours and solve that problem. And it can be a big problem the world's facing. So after I spoke at that, I got off stage and Elon's walking down and he looked terrible and uh, he goes up on stage and there's this big video of the Falcon 9 and they strapped a GoPro camera to the side of it. And it was the first time that it was successful. It was a successful launch, right? And mm-hmm. he got up on stage and said, the first rockets went sideways. We had no more cash. This this was it. If this didn't work, SpaceX is done, Yeah, right. right? And what I found out later was he'd got off the plane from coming back to meet with Daimler to raise money for Tesla to save it from bankruptcy. It was days within bank- bankruptcy, right? Get straight up and didn't, didn't even talk about it. But even then had clarity of vision of what SpaceX was about and clarity of vision of what Tesla was about. And to me, I have respect for the guy because it's a bold, audacious goal, right? But if you look at what he's done to the electric car market with team, right? It's not him, it's it's the team. Um, And a very good chair in Robin Denholm, who's Australian. Yeah, that's right. And their market cap now is, is what, 130, 140 billion dollars, right? Extraordinary. And you know, in the back of my mind is, well, what kind of company are they? Are they a car company or are they an energy company? Yeah. And if they're an energy company, they're just getting started. Have you created the name for your business? I have. Well, come on. Tell us a little bit more about it then. ExoFlare. ExoFlare. All right. What's it stand for then? Well, I don't want to give too much away because I think it's a big idea and we'll talk more about it over the coming months. All right. We'll look forward to continuing that discussion then. Yeah. Adrian, if we were having this conversation in 10 years' time, what will we be talking about? I think we'll be talking about the ingenuity of people to solve the world's wicked problems, and I think we will have made a lot of progress. So right now we're staring down the barrel of corona and a new class of threat. 10 years from now, we'll be thinking about antibiotics and vaccines in a completely different way. We'll be using machine learning and AI-based systems to discover new drugs in the same way we think about climate as a wicked problem, I think we will have made significant progress around emissions reductions. I think there'll be new sorts of economics that are incenting investment in renewable technology. I think the technology is going to get better faster. So you think about hydrogen and the promise of hydrogen, for example. If you think about oil and what oil has done for the world, enormous productivity drove the industrial revolution right but the geopolitical implications countries have gone to war over over oil is huge right so there's going to be a shift in the world order i think we're going to be facing a new world order where energy is more abundant and less expensive where we've made progress against climate change where we've made progress by changing the economics in plastics and have a deeper understanding of how to protect and respect our oceans. 
I think we're going to be living longer. I think if you look at the quality of life, the core metrics of um, the quality of life and the health of people generally around the world, there's been a lift. You can't argue it. Gates is really vocal about this. And then I think we're going to have to come to terms with technology that's evolving on exponential scales and governance structures and government process that won't keep up with the technology that's shifting exponentially. So I think we're going to have a rethink around what's the role of government? What's the role of policy? I think we're going to have bifurcation of the internet. I think we're going to have two internets. I think we're going to have an internet that's you know propagated by China. And I think we're going to have another internet that's propagated by the West. And I think we might have more internets than that over time. I think we're on the cusp of 5G and there's been this promise of connecting equipment to the network, cars and industrial equipment. And but that was the same vision you had all those years ago, wasn't it? And it, and it takes time. It's like there's this famous saying that we overestimate the near term and underestimate the long term. Not in those words, but you know, in spirit. And that's what's going to happen, right? We're going to look at this and put too much promise in AI in the next five years, but we're going to completely underestimate its impact over the next decades. Same with moving to programming life and biological systems. We're going to underweight the impact short term and overweight it short term and underweight it long term. And so, but but even these timescales of decades, so it's not that long. And I mean, if, if ever you need evidence that the context is changing quickly, you know, bringing it back to, to businesses, Look at the average lifespan of an S&P 500 company, right? It's, it's condensed because it's so hard to operate and shift and evolve in, in a changing context with industrial era structures that a lot of our incumbent industries and industry around the world are kind of based on an industrial era structure. So I'm really optimistic. I think some of these technologies have two edges. There's two sides to them, but yeah. I mean, think about nuclear, right? That was, a, I remember growing up at school with the shadow of, you know, is there, you know, the Cold War and is, is there going to be a nuclear event, right? Where, where even, I remember even posters in school, like, is, is, you know, what, what do you do in the case of a nuclear event? But think about that. On the one hand, you've got weapons. On the other hand, you've got nuclear power. And so I think we're going to see that same dichotomy it's like CRISPR technology on the one hand it allows you to genetically engineer a pathogen in a lab and i'm not saying that's the case at all with corona but on the other hand it allows us to genetically modify biological material to develop new new drugs your concept of two internets or more you really believe that's the case do you i do i think we're going to have multiple internets and then the other thing that's going to happen is data coming back to the role of data, which really, I think the currency is trust in a networked world and it's all about data and getting access to data and making, being able to make good decisions, data-driven decisions. And I think what's going to happen there is people and companies are going to start to think about data as an asset very differently. We're going to find new ways to value data as an asset. Yep. I think we're going to have more focus on sovereign classes of data. So you see right now, really in the last five years, a lot of focus on, well, 
the data can't leave the country, right? Yeah. This data needs to be housed here and not in another part of the world. Um, so it, it is it is going to be, uh, you know, it's a transformative, but it's, it's really exciting. The intersect of digital and data with every part of the economy to drive, you know, new new economics and opportunity. I think it's an extraordinary time. But we talk about data all the time. Who's the best that you know who actually pulls the data apart and actually maximizes the information? So who does a really good job of this? I'll give you an example in the ag sector. So an example in the ag sector would be Monsanto. So Monsanto used to sell seeds, genetically modified seeds to the ag sector. Yep. But what they realized was that there was a platform with platform economics to be built. And so what they did was they realized that the biggest factor in crop yield is weather. And they bought a company called Climate Corp that offers weather-related insurance. Then what they did was they tapped into open data, including soil sample data, soil data in, in the US and other countries. And then they built a model that said to farmers and producers, if you put our sensors on your property, and if you use our platform and our methodology, you'll make smarter decisions because you'll benefit from the insights from farmers all around the world. And then what they did was made predictions about crop yield for certain classes of crop based on the geography and other factors. But they linked into the futures market to get a point of view of what would be the relative price of different crops at the end of season, plus or minus. Now they're able to go to a producer and say, we can guarantee you a financial outcome at the end of the season, plus or minus, if you use our platform and our methodology, right? And it's a scale business. And they move from selling an input to being a financial partner to the ag sector and re completely reframe the basis of competition. You look in the airline industry and you look at engines, right? You see the model there shifting from we sell a jet engine to we now sell a jet engine with a maintenance contract and don't worry, we'll, we'll keep it up to we don't sell you the jet engine, we sell you the flight hour and we take care of all the maintenance and everything and you pay us by the hour that that engine's in use. So we're going to see entirely different sorts of economic models and we're, you know, we're seeing it in the sharing space like the Ubers of the world, but I think we're going to see it in the enterprise as well. Are we going to see another book written by you? Not anytime soon. If you were to look back to the young Adrian Turner starting out all those years ago, packing his bags and off to the USA, what advice would you give him now? Uh, so I, I think it would be a advice about resilience. So it's not whether you get knocked down, it's how quickly you get back up and get back into the ring and back into the fight to uh, have, the, have the courage to follow through on your convictions and beliefs and be resilient because I can't tell you how many times along the way people have said, no, that makes no sense. I remember walking into tier one venture capital offices with Makana and being drop kicked out of those offices and being told I'm an idiot for thinking that things would connect to the network. Like people are like, why, why the hell would we want to connect a phone or, or why would we want to connect a car? Just so if you see something and you have conviction in it, don't let others get in the way. If you do get knocked down, get straight back up and kind of have the courage to follow through on the convictions. And I think I've 
generally done that. I think there's a couple of times early on where people kind of knocked me off the course and had I stayed the course and had the courage to follow through on that conviction, you know, they, they would have been uh, great outcomes. So that's the advice. And I think through it all, it's like also stay humble because I do feel extraordinarily lucky to have been just in a part of the world where a lot of really interesting things happen and you just got to stay really humble and kind of open-minded and the minute you stop doing that and I've seen people around me do that you just close yourself off to a lot and so so staying humble is a big thing. Adrian I can't ask for any more than that really enjoyed your company today thank you thanks very much for joining us yeah you're welcome You've been listening to No Limitations.